Hello again. Happy Monday and welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today is Mitch Light of The Athletic. Mitch will appear on our guest line, which is brought to you by Bolin Branch. That company started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no idea what I was missing until I got some Bolt and Branch sheets. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to BolandBranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code Vandy and get $50 off your first set of sheets. Our news is presented by Sutherland and Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in any type of accident, call Taylor or Russell at 615-846-6200. See what your rights are and if they can help. Vanderbilt falls in its season opener 17-12 to Texas A&M at Kyle Field in College Station. The Commodores fall to 0-1, but really get a good performance out of a defense which forced three turnovers and held the Aggies under 400 yards. Mitch and I will spend a lot of the show talking about those things today. The Vandy Sports Podcast is presented by Jody Jones, DDS, trusted for his creative design and committed to both the function and aesthetics of your smile. Jody Jones provides a range of sought-after general and cosmetic dentistry services at his practice in Nashville. Jody has earned the title of number one in Nashville for cosmetic dentistry and provides a unique environment for patients who want his famous Hollywood smile or other services. Patients enjoy getting services from Dr. Jones and his attentive team in a spa-like atmosphere. Dr. Jones has worked with many athletes, movie stars, and celebrities over the years and is dedicated to providing first-rate service to all of his patients. Jody never compromises quality so patients can be confident they will always receive the highest level of care. Special thanks to Jody for being the title sponsor of this season. Mitch Light joins us as we talk Vanderbilt and college football today. Mitch is uniquely qualified to do that because he is a college football editor at The Athletic. He has got his finger on the pulse of everything. Mitch, thanks for joining us today. I hope you and your family are well. Doing well, Chris. Thanks for having me. Let's start with college football. We are a few weeks into a strange season. We're one week into it for the SEC uh, three weeks into it for some other teams. <laughs> the Big Ten is getting around to it. The Mountain West is getting around to it. What is your take on the situation right now in college football between what you've seen and what is to come? Well, I thought Saturday, and if you're you know a real big college football fan, Saturday probably felt like the most normal Saturday, normal weekend day we've had in probably six months with all the games going on. Now, it wasn't a completely full slate, obviously, without the Big Ten, Pac-12, and some other leagues, but there were more than enough games to keep you busy, and there was some craziness and trying to flip around and catch everything. And the the Texas, the end of the Texas Texas Tech game was wild. Uh, Two thirty CBS game was four and a half hours, and it was glorious. Um, some of the early SEC games were were, were fun. Um, so yeah, I think that the the takeaways are specifically in the SEC. I thought Florida looked very good, especially offensively. Mississippi State, obviously very good. And then LSU and Georgia, two, the defending division champs, not looking good. 
quite honestly not surprised about LSU. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I thought they would lose to Mississippi State, but I just I was not as high on them in the preseason just due to all of their losses, and they just did not handle themselves very well. Georgia's the one that surprised me. Um, just Arkansas statistically had been so bad last couple of years, uncompetitive. Now, they have some decent skill guys, but Georgia looked – not good offensively. The Dewan Mathis, the, the quarterback who got the start, did not look comfortable, had to pull him. Um, defense was good. So, you know, they got the win, uh, survived. I'm sure they'll get better offensively if JT Daniels might take over that quarterback position. So, uh, you know, I, I would say, you know, Alabama as expected, South Carolina, Tennessee kind of as expected. So, you know, Mississippi State was the big surprise in the SEC. Uh, and then, you know, Miami obviously continues to play really well. Um, on a national front, maybe one of the surprise teams there. So it, like I said, it was, it was a fun Saturday and it it kind of felt normal. What's your take on LSU? I mean, I know you got into it just a little bit just then, but KJ Costello throws what an all time sec record in that game in terms of passing yardage, which that's not something you want to be on the other end of. And I'm watching in the NFL yesterday, I didn't see the Bengals game, but you know, Joe Burrow steps in and takes the Eagles to overtime, or excuse me, he takes the Bengals to overtime. They're playing the Eagles, just to state that correctly. And then I watched Justin Jefferson just rip the Titans to pieces yesterday. Uh, I don't know. I have some questions about LSU after what we saw last weekend. Yeah, and they're fair. Um, they obviously still have a lot of talent, uh, but they've always had talent. Those years when, towards the end of the last miles era, when they were disappointing and early in the Edo year they, they've always had talent I don't think Miles Brennan is a championship caliber quarterback there's there, this might not be a fair statement but there's a reason they went out and got Joe Burrow as a grad transfer they didn't think Miles Brennan I think he probably would have been as a redshirt freshman was get ready to be the guy now I know schools take transfers all the t- time and you want competition and I get all that but Brennan did not look comfortable um I guess a good Mississippi State defense, but not a great defense. They weren't great last year. I know they're good in the defensive line, and they just lost so much skill. I mean, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was a first-round pick or early, yeah, late first-round pick, and um, it's interesting that Ed Ogeron, you know, Dave Aranda leaves, his defensive coordinator leaves to go to Baylor, and he said some things in preseason where it made it clear that he was not sad that Dave Aranda was gone, that he brought in his guy, Bo Pelini. He said, comment, made comments about the defense looking better in preseason than at any point last year. It's kind of like, be careful what you wish for. You know, he's your guy. Well, if it doesn't get, if it doesn't happen with your guy, people are going to look to you. And I know Orgeron won a national championship last year. I get all that. I'm not trying to say he's on the hot seat by any stretch, but that's the nature of college football. You lose a lot of players. Uh, LSU fans are wanting their program to be like Alabama, where they can sustain championship caliber teams, that there's no dip. Um, and they're 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 not there right now. Let's talk about Vandy and A and M. Your thoughts on what you saw on Saturday night in College Station? Yeah, um, surprised, pleasantly surprised. You know, for the most part, um, if you would have told me it would be a one score game most of the time, I you know I probably wouldn't have believed you. I thought they got. I thought a huge play in the game. Just uh, not to make too much of it. I think Vanderbilt's first possession, they run the ball twice or maybe an incomplete. Pass. I forgot. And then the third and long, hand the ball off to Javion Marlowe, and he runs for a first down. I really thought that gave the offense some confidence and, and kind of get, got things going and gave, you know, 
Um, and then kind of what, you know, this, the offensive, offensive statistics weren't great by any stretch, but clearly more, more of a plan. I thought, I thought Ken Seals looked composed, um, didn't make many poor decisions. I thought his, um, touchdown pass in the corner of the end zone was as good as it gets. And that was a perfect, that was an NFL throw right there. You know, I know there's been debate about the interception across the middle, whose fault that was. I think Derek Mason came out and said that it was seals uh, fault, but but it's unfortunate there because if Cam Johnson cuts in, he's got, if he, if seals throws to where Cam Johnson is, it's a touchdown. So like either way would have been a productive play. His second interception was, you know, it was third and long, and he just kind of chucked it up there. So, and I thought defensively, Vanderbilt was good, uh, gave up some yards. I thought, and see if you agree with this, Chris, like, I, I thought last year, uh, and, and we both say, make the point that we're not X's and O's guys. I never played the sport, but I just didn't think Vanderbilt was well co- coordinated on both sides of the ball. I thought Texas A&M's big plays for the most part were, were missed tackles. And certain times where A&M just out-athleted Vanderbilt, which is going to happen. I didn't find as many times where guys were running through holes that were, you know, six feet wide or receivers running downfield, you know, in, in open zones in the defense with no defender within 10 yards. So I thought they were better coached defensively. Just sometimes they just didn't make the play, which is going to happen. Uh, every, all these teams have athletes. And one of the things I thought – uh, two more points. I thought Marlowe looked good. Wasn't sure he could be a every down, be you know, just hand it off to him. And I don't know. I mean, he had what? He didn't have like 25 carries, but clearly he's not just a toy back there where they can just give it to him on reverses and stuff. And I thought the defensive line, as we thought, would be a bright spot uh, or surprise or better than usual. And it was. And it tells you defensively, you can do a lot more things when you're when you're getting an effective defensive line. Yeah, let's start on the defensive side. At least I will with my response here. Last year I watched them, and I'm particularly thinking of the Ole Miss game where there were holes in the defensive line that you could drive a truck through, literally. I did not see that this year. Uh, And I also didn't see a lot of busted coverages on the back end. What I did see that was a common denominator towards last year, and you basically said it, was – you get some guys in the secondary going loose once they've broken a big play and you have some maybe bad angles and missed tackles and those sorts of things. So you saw that last year too. That's where I'm concerned. I just don't think that they are fast enough overall as a team, especially especially in the back part. I'm not saying the secondary played poorly. I just don't think their guys have the speed that SEC receivers have. So I think that's still going to be a little bit of a problem once kids get loose on them. I think that you saw some shades of last year in that regard, but the difference was there weren't as many opportunities for that to happen because the front seven did its job against the run, and I thought that the back-end guys did better in terms of covering and knowing where to be and just not having busted assignments. Yeah, I agree, and just watching the game, I would rather see guys just get run past than guys wide open, if that makes sense. Like, that that's going to happen. You know, in, in Vanderbilt's defense, Vanderbilt's is what it is defensively. Um, I agree the secondary is not as fast. I just don't like watching when you feel like that they're poorly coached, and I, I think we're on the same same wavelength here. Like, you know, there, there's two degrees of that. One is there's certain guys that are just going to be elite. You got your Jamar Chases from LSU, who last year ran through the secondary. He's going to do that to almost every team. You just can't have your 
next tier of SEC guys. You don't want your next tier of SEC guys running through your secondary. And I think that's where the concern is, where the lack of speed is, the lack of tough angles in the secondary where you can't simulate that in practice. So, yeah, I mean, that's going to be a concern. Big plays because, you know, the, the problem is you, you it's demoralizing as a defense. And that's when you get into some analytics and uh, efficiency of like you can you can have a high efficiency rate on defense and, and kind of win three out of every four plays. But if that fourth play goes for 17 yards when it should go for, for four yards, then that's that's what really hurts you. Yeah, to paraphrase what you're saying and then add another layer to it, I thought that they did a good job of controlling what they can control. I mean, once your team yeah. is out there and you have your players, you can only perform to the best of your ability. I thought that the players, for the most part, did that. I think the offensive line might have gotten worn down a little bit later yeah, in the game. That's I, when two sacks happened. Yeah, I agree with that. So I think that was part of it. But I thought the line played to the best of its capability. I think Peter Rosamondo, from what people have told me privately, that's really what I'm going to go on. I'm not going to be able to look at an offensive line and tell you what they're doing and those things. I keep my ear to the ground to listen to people who know what they're talking about and the scouting report on him from day one has been he's really well liked over there by those kids, and he's very well respected. I don't think that that was the case for Cam Norcross last year by a long shot. I don't know where that started to go wrong, uh, but it's apparent to me now there was a big rift between him and the players last year, um, and I think I can understand why based on some details, and I'm not going to share here, but I will leave it at this. I think that Again, I think that they did a really good job of controlling what they could control. The only two big issues I had on that end were, number one, you saw the penalty on Chris Pierce near the end of the game. I thought that was a terrible penalty. He's a senior. He should know better. That could have really cost him in that situation. Uh, The Mason penalty we'll get to in a minute uh, because there's a question for you in the mailbag about that. So I will table that to then. The other thing I didn't care for was Donovan Kaufman running a kickoff back from five or six yards deep in the end zone. Again, under the control, which you can control thing. That's one where he should have known better. He's also a true freshman playing his first game, and he was a very bold kid, uh, was in high school, could probably get away with it there, and probably cannot in the SEC, which I think he probably found out. But I think... There's that, but on the other hand, I graded their offense a D plus, and a few people took issue with that. And what I said was basically what I just told you. I don't really have an issue with the coaching, with the effort of the players, but you look down on paper, Mitch, 3.8 yards per play on offense. I don't care how you get there. That's not good. Um, And I think in year seven of a coach's tenure, the program should be further along than it is, and that's my point there. Yeah, it just kind of depends on what your scale is. If you're grading it as an SEC offense in a vacuum, your grade's fair. If you're grading it, and I'm not just saying which is the right way, if you're grading it based on expectations, I think the offensive line was better than we thought. The running game was better than I thought it would be, and Ken Seals played well. So I think going forward, there's there's a lot more positives offensively. That's kind of why I introed it with, I understand the stats weren't good statistically, but I thought, again, that the offense exceeded not from a statistical point of view or points, but the offense exceeded my expectations on how well they performed. And I agree the offensive line got tired late in the game. I didn't notice, like, 
I was I had the Vanderbilt game on my main TV, but also the Tennessee South Carolina game on with my my job at uh, the Athletic. I, I I deal with our South Carolina writer Josh Kendall, so I probably should have been paying even more attention to that game. But um, so and I usually don't like to speak ill of announcers, but I thought the announcers did not, not a, they didn't do a, a very good job setting the table, letting you know who was in the game, who wasn't in the game. They didn't do a very good job of much things like. Um, I did not notice, but from I rewatched the first half. I didn't notice Vanderbilt subbing much on the offensive line. Did they? Uh, the box score says that they played. Let's see. I've got it right in front of me and I'm going to yeah, check I I it. Mean, ben, ben Cox, it says they played and it says Britt, uh, Bradley Ashmore played. I saw, I think if that's right. And look, this is the box score that came out right after the game and those guys are in the press box with binoculars looking on the field, seeing who's coming in and coming out. Uh, they're just like anybody else. Sometimes they're flawed human beings and they miss things or a number gets written down wrong or there's a double number and they record the wrong guy. But if they are correct in their assessment, then you had seven linemen play and two of those would have been freshmen. Yeah, coming which off the I bench. guess is a good thing. Uh, you know, uh, you need to get as many guys ready, but that they felt that maybe they've got a going forward and, and just kind of develop that group. Um, another thing I didn't, again, didn't notice that much. Did Malik Langham play a lot? I don't know that he played a lot. He was He's listed as a playing. Now, I don't think that he registered a stat. I'm looking that up as we speak. He did not. In fact, here's something that really sticks out now that I look at it. They only had 16 guys record stats or 15 guys, like either a tackle you know, a pass breakup, an interception, a hurry, whatever. There weren't that many offense. Texas a did not have a ton of offensive plays. Yeah, 55, so that, that helps. But that's one thing, like the, the list of defensive stats for Vanderbilt, and I'm not saying it's good, I'm not saying it's bad, but usually see a much longer list of defensive players who log stats than you saw on Saturday for Vandy. Yeah, but just for example, that A&M's 55 offensive plays were the fewest in the league. Um Georgia had 89 offensive plays, so obviously when there's only 55 plays, there's going to be fewer, um, you know, fewer tackles recorded there. So, uh, like for instance, the announcers and I missed the first series. I went back and watched it, but you know, no mention of Dimitri Moore not playing. The only time they mentioned him was when they thought he made a tackle and they corrected his number. And, and as someone who used to like work games, I sometimes get it if if a guy's not in uniform, not there, you might. You expect to see him, and if you don't see him, it's you, you might skip over him. But Dimitri Moore was on the sideline, like Vanderbilt's best or second-best defensive player, on the sideline, not wearing shoulder pads. The sideline reporter or the announcers have to have to notice that. That was kind of a big storyline there, and of course they, they didn't. And uh, that was just one of my frustrations watching the game, especially not to be like – I'd been to 96 straight Vanderbilt football games as a sideline reporter, so watching on TV, I was just disappointed by the lack of uh, – you know, lack of information, but I think most announcer crews uh, of the SEC network or ESPN are, are, will do a much better job of that. Yeah, I think when you've got a guy who's being mentioned as a first-round draft pick and certainly a starter and your leading tackler the last two years, that deserves a mention and a when he's out. out opted back in. I mean, he's kind of a storyline. Right, yeah. yes, yes. He was, he was very much at the forefront. I mean, their best defensive player and maybe best player on the team is either him or Odingbo. So right. I, I don't know how you missed that either. Yes. But one one more thing, Mitch. Um yeah. you know, the the yards per play, that's that and points are sort of the definitive stats for offensive football. But 
nothing goes without context. And I will say, I thought that the offense did play better than 3.8 per play, and here's the reason why. First downs, they tied A&M 17 apiece. Uh, They were able to hold the ball for 34 minutes of the game, which was big in helping the defense. So, and the key in that was Seals' 20 of 29 passing. Again, yards per play and yards per pass are the numbers we look at. But if you want to get a little nuanced, then I think you have to look at that and say, well, how do they do it? And what they did is they would rack up short completions and runs just enough to keep the clock moving. So I will say I thought that they played a little better than that number. It's still not a good number. But I think that was key to how the game flow went on. Yeah, I agree. Seven for 17 on the third down, um, forced some turnovers. You know, Texas A&M has a very good defensive line. They're, they're one of their better linebackers opted out or got hurt. I forgot which one. They are, from a talent standpoint, are probably top four in the SEC and playing on the road there. So, uh, you know, playing well on the road against a good team doesn't guarantee you anything. But, again, in context, big picture stuff, there are a lot of positives based on based on the, the the team they played. It wasn't like they went on the road and played Missouri and hung in there and you know oh that was one of the games you think they have a chance to win. If you were ranking probable wins this year, A um, and M would be in the bottom two or three probably. Or maybe at A and M that might be you know I you you might have said LSU at home, but I, I think after what I saw. This weekend, I would say the Florida and A&M game, you know, heading into it, Florida obviously is going to be really good. A&M, you know, one of the least likely chances to win. Well, I don't know what you think of Phil Steele, but Phil Steele basically said they were a dark horse contender for for the playoffs. So that's one well, guy's opinion, but yeah. He'll tell you he was, it wasn't his fault that he was wrong. Yeah, the well, players, Phil the is didn't play well enough. He was right. Yeah. The players didn't play well enough. Yeah, Phil is big on promoting Phil, but Phil's a big fan of Phil Steele. Yes, that's that's what I'm trying to say too. But anyway, just just going to throw that out there. I mean, they do have a lot of talent. I think one of the best indicators of talent is preseason ranking in the AP poll. They are ten, and so in that sense, you know, that's probably within striking distance of the playoff, depending on how you want to move the bar. But the point is. Whether it's Phil or the AP or whoever it is, I don't think there's anybody that looks at AM and says that's not a talented team. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, they've recruited very well. They've always recruited well, and they've got a senior quarterback. And, um, you know, they lost their top wide receiver to opt out. But, um, you know, no no, no one's going to get any pity for Vanderbilt on losing guys uh, opting out. So, um, yeah, I thought uh, um, all things considered, again, a one-possession game late in the game and – um, you know, not, you, you can't expect, especially a first time kicker, make every kick, but Pearson cook missed that 47 yarder just to the right. If he, you know, games go differently and, and all that, but if he makes that and it's, it's a field goal game, like that would have been interesting. That's another thing too. I mean, a small thing, but, uh, Javon rice, uh, scholarship kicker, I guess he's still on the roster, but he's, that's two. He's been beaten out by two walk-ons now. Um, which you, which you don't love to see when you, Use a scholarship on a place kicker, you'd like to see him win the job for three or four years. Yeah, that's a good point. I know nothing about Pearson Cook. I have barely seen him kick. He's a walk-on. He nails the first kick of the, of the game that he tries, and it may be the first kick of his career. I'd have to go back and look that up. But the 47-yarder, if I remember, it was plenty long, and he just barely missed it, did he not? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it drifted right. And then now, one thing I did point out, they announced that they, they – 
the coaches told him that they felt good from him from a distance from 15 and I just I just recognized Pearson Cook just from the sidelines you know he was always he was their backup kicker I thought he was a punter actually but uh you know obviously the, they, they were expecting the, the grad transfer from Columbia um to uh be the kicker but he opted out but I, I you know he he made what made his extra points made a short short field goal so um from a from a you know kicking was far from a debacle which which you know when you got a first time walk on kicker out there is, is a possibility there so um and one, one other note i know i agree with you about kaufman taking the ball out of the end zone obviously you don't want to do that but at least it didn't result in the safety which was one of the stranger plays when AM's guy tried to return a punt out of the end zone and that's another thing like i don't know about the announcers the guy returns a punt out of the end zone. There's two flags immediately in the end zone, and they were just shocked. They're like, wow, it's a safety? Like, oh, my. Like, that's the first thing I thought of. Oh, there's a penalty in the end zone. It's a safety. So. You, you beat me to it. I was sitting there watching, and my son was watching with me. And I immediately saw the flag. I said, that's a safety. I mean, unless right. unless Vanderbilt, you know, grabbed a guy's face mask in the end zone. Like, that, that should have been very easy to figure out. And, and think Andre Ware was the color man in that right yes he, he would know that well he, clearly he wasn't paying attention yeah well anyway that's part of the problem <laughs> might have been um let's go to the mailbag which is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood who can take care of all your insurance needs call him today 615-933-1979 email him at josh at hqinsurance.com follow him on twitter at joshua minton hq or facebook.com forward slash jd minton hq he's my insurance agent give him a try and tell him you heard about him on the podcast uh, Door King says, what are your thoughts on Mason's penalty at the end of the game, as well as his clock and timeout management? Yeah, I, it's hard for me to say because I wasn't there. Uh, um, if what he claims is correct that, you know, he was trying to call a timeout and they didn't notice, I, I, I feel his pain. I can't tell you how many times on the sideline I'd be there when, when Vanderbilt's coaches would be screaming at a tight out timeout and the referees in an obvious end of half or situation, referees aren't looking and he has to run out there. Uh, my question would be, would think they'd give Nick Saban or Dan Mullen a timeout for running on the field for, I mean, a penalty for trying to get a timeout when they're not paying attention. I thought a lot was made out of it. I get it. But like it was, I'm looking at the box where it was second and eight, I think there was a minute and what, 50, 40 to go. Vanderbilt only had one timeout. They hadn't been moving the ball. Like, that clearly ended the game. I get that. But it wasn't like it was third down and Vanderbilt was about to get the ball back. They probably weren't going to get the ball back. So, I, without knowing a ton about it, I don't – I obviously, it's not a good situation, but I understand his frustration because he gets pissed at the refs a lot because they don't pay attention in timeout situations. I am in agreement with you there. I – think that that seems to happen to him a lot, that he's screaming at somebody at a linesman to get a timeout, running up and down the field in those situations. Now, there are times that Derek just whiffs on timeouts, period, right? We've seen that. But I've also seen another number of times where it seems like he is just livid, where he's trying to get somebody's attention and they're not paying attention to him. And I don't know if that was a, you know, a, a, a cop-out, Hey, we got embarrassed and you're calling us out on that, so we're going to give you a penalty. I don't In fact, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen that happen before. I think your point is right. I don't think if Nick Saban's doing that and they don't see him, uh, <laughs> that they throw the right. flag in that instance. I think you make a really good point there. 
Right. I didn't love his, I mean, this is a small nitpick. I didn't love his timeout at the end of the first half. Like it was, A&M was running out the clock, which I was a little surprised about. And Derek called a timeout to make them snap the ball again. But I think it was Vanderbilt's last timeout. And if I'm A&M and I've got better athletes than you, I'm going to hand the ball. Sure, I know you could fumble. I'm going to hand the ball off and see if I can make someone miss. So, like, there was – it was no – it was very, very little chance Vanderbilt was going to get the ball back. It wasn't like they were going to force A&M to punt. Now, A&M would have had to punt if they if they did run a play and didn't get the yardage. So, I mean, there's a little cat and mouse game there. It was – again, this is a small nitpick. I would not have used a timeout there. I would have been like, okay, A&M's running clock I would prefer them not run and when they've got a really good athlete at running back next one from door king how do you rate Todd Fitch's play calling in the first game would you have done anything differently I would have scored more points um <laughs> that's but, why you should be a coach yeah observations I, no, I like these I was really high in the Todd Fitch hire after people I talked to and just um I thought he did a good job but you know th- there was a stat about um, running the ball a lot on first down, which you don't want to get into a pattern like that, but he's got a freshman quarterback on the road. And I think he's trying to get three, if you can get three yards on first down, make it manageable there. I'm sure he'd probably would have had to like a little more balance there. Um, so I had, I had no problems. You know, I'm not usually not critical of coordinators because it's so difficult. You don't know the game plan. It's hard to tell what the defenses are doing. That's why whenever I talk about last year's coordinators, I always, put that as a caveat. I usually don't criticize coordinators, but so I, I thought there's more organization, a better plan. I loved his fourth down call. I like the use of Marlowe. So um, yeah, I'm, I was expecting an improvement there and I think we saw it. I would have thought if you'd said the plays were going to go 38, 27 run pass, I would have thought it would have been flipped, but admittedly, that was based on a small sample size in spring, and I think they were working on the passing install portion of the part we saw. Of course, practice got truncated. I'm sure they had this plan for this is what we're going to do in practice one, and this is what we'll do in practice 10. Of course, nobody knew the pandemic was coming. I'm sure they would have adjusted and done things differently if they'd only known that they had have would have gotten like four practices. But I was a little surprised that – that it wasn't flipped. And I get what you're saying about a true freshman quarterback. I'm not necessarily being critical. But on the other hand, that's not a kid who's hurting for confidence either. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I just don't think you see many on the road against a good defensive line like that in his first start that they're going to fling the ball all over the place, especially with a group of wide receivers that aren't known for getting great separation. And I think they, they ran the ball well early, uh, moved the chains early. Um, so that maybe got him a little more confidence and, you know, some protection issues too. So I, I'm not surprised at all by that. How do you think uh, Keon Brooks figures into the rotation once he gets back? Man, we're really on the same page because you keep going where I'm going to go next. Um, well, first of all, if it's COVID, then I think he's automatically out for LSU, right? I would think so. Well, here's the question I have before you work Brooks back into it. I've always thought Marla was the best back of those three, and I thought that the carries should have been, oh, man, if you're going to go, what were they carried, 38 times, I guess four with the quarterback, I would have gone, you know, probably 24-10 in favor of Marlowe if you got 34 carries between your two running backs. Built, think he's built for 24 carries? 
Well, he certainly doesn't have the wear and tear on his body coming into the year in terms of the the workload he's been given. You know, that's the thing about Mason that, you know, somebody told me this who was pretty well connected, and I'm I'm sure there was some opinion in this, right? But this person told me a few years ago, the style of game that Mason wants to play is just three and four yards at a time and control the clock. And Ralph Webb was the kind of back – that he wanted because Webb wasn't going to break long runs, but he was going to get consistent chunks of yardage. And I remember asking Andy Ludwig going into Ralph's junior or senior year, I said, are you concerned at all about the wear and tear that you put on Ralph Webb? He's like, no, he can handle it. But then when Keyshawn Vaughn's the running back, and granted there were some good reasons for this, right? All of a sudden it went to, I mean, from day one, We've got to manage his workload and all those sorts of things. Um, you know, some people think that that's just the way Derek wants to play is having a bruising back who can pick up short chunks of yardage and control the clock, 1970 style football. Now, that may or may not be correct, but that's kind of the way that it's played out because when I watch Marlowe and Wakefield, just to me, there's no comparison. Yeah, I just that Marlowe's not as big and take the pound. And I'm I'm only half kidding here. I find it hard to believe that Derek Mason would not want Ralph Webb to go for 70 yards on a run and would rather get five yards on a run. I mean, I, I I think there were concerns about Vaughn. You know, Ralph Webb, one of his strengths was, you know, being available as a skill. And Ralph Webb, you know, I think he hurt his foot one year, but he basically went four years as the featured back without missing a game when Keyshawn Vaughn, in two years was in and out of the training room. So that the, there was good to, to back that up, that you had to control Vaughn's in, uh, workload to some degree. Now, towards the end of his second, um, I think, you know, Webb was at that point, that's the way they were constructed. They didn't have another back. So uh, I, I just, I'm not surprised that Marlowe didn't get the ball 30 times in his first game as the every down back. So, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think he's, he's, but I'm with you. I thought he looked good two years ago as a true freshman. I know Andy Ludwig really liked him. I think I was glad to see them use him, as I said earlier, as more of a feature back rather than just kind of a, you know, a, a piece that you use and you line him up in the slight, like a Darius Sims. I thought he was going to be a Darius Sims type in his career, but I'm glad to see that he can be an every, every down type back. My guess is that Brooks, if you run a foot race, is the fastest straight line of, of those three. Now, I don't know that he beats Marlowe by a ton, and then Wakefield would be third, but I just think Wakefield has got that. And you didn't really see it as much Saturday, but I've seen it in practice where he's got a little bit of a shimmy and a make-you-miss element to his game um, that I think could – and I think that's the thing that I've really liked about him. It's not track speed, it's functional speed, and, and watching him, to me – like I said, and this is based mostly on fall camp observations, I think he's got that where the other two don't. Yeah, um, I, I I think he's a solid part piece to a, to a, a a committee backfield. I wouldn't want him to be your the every down back, and you know we'll see what happens with Brooks. But I guess they've got um, well Griffin's I guess uh, there too. But you know until Brooks comes back, they really only have two healthy backs that they can give the ball to right now. Ann Arbor says Ken Seals had a pretty strong performance as a true freshman starting quarterback on a big stage with the composure of an older player. What other true freshman quarterback starts, Vanderbilt or another school, would you say are comparable in terms of performance? And he says maybe David Wallace in the 1990s. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, Wallace started as a true freshman. Shermer started as a true freshman, but not in week one. I think Wallace was like week two or week three, played at Alabama. I mean, I think Seals is, is more talented. Um, although that, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that, that Wallace team had some decent wide receivers. Um, I think Dan Stricker was young and, and um, what's a kid from Florida, from uh, the Panhandle in Florida. Um, who had a good, really good career, forgot his name. So, you know, it's, it's hard. Every circumstance is different. I mean, Shermer was talented, but the offense was not very good his freshman year. There's in, they, they basically didn't trust him to do anything, but hand the ball off to Ralph Webb as his career, you know, progressed, they, they started letting, letting him do more there. So it's, it's, it's hard to compare them to, I mean, the, the kid that I, from, from a character and toughness, you know, I, I've, I've kind of compared him to, Cutler, uh, who was a redshirt freshman, obviously, that was in the preseason. My point was like, hey, even if it's a tough go early this year, a tough go this year, if Seals has the right makeup, which we think he does, you just kind of kind of take your lumps and move on and keep getting better and kind of grow up with the offense, sort of like Cutler did. Was Tavares Hogan's the receiver yes. you were thinking of? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Who, great dude. I used to, you know, the sideline, he was always at the Vanderbilt, Florida games in Gainesville. I used to always see him after the game. He was, he was always... I was good. Still a good dude. The SEC Network, uh, if I heard this correctly, that since true freshmen became eligible to play, which I think was 1972, there have only been three true freshmen to take the first snap in the league. Is that correct? Yeah, I did not know that. I was trying to think, and I don't, um, you know, because I remember when, would it have been Drew Locke? Drew Locke for Shermer? That was one of the, like, I looked that up. That was one of only the first true freshman versus true freshman starting in X amount of years in the SEC. It took forever. So uh, was Brent Schaefer one of them? Yeah, if I remember correctly, it was Brent Schaefer was one and Bo Nix was the other one. Nix, of course, last year. And, and Schaefer was in a platoon, if I remember, with Eric Ainge, I think. Was that it? And Ainge ended up being the starter? All the years, years blend together, but maybe. Yeah, it, it, there were there were two true freshmen that were in the running, and I I want to say that it was Schaefer and Ainge, and, and whoever ended up winning that job, uh, it was the other one. Schaefer was not the quarterback at the end of the year and, and wound up transferring to Ole Miss. But, yeah, I mean, that's – now, times are different, right? Because now all of all these seven-on-seven passing camps and high schools throwing the ball a lot more, I think your average freshman quarterback is more advanced when they get to campus – but at the same time, even Peyton Manning didn't take the first snap at Tennessee. That shows you how hard that is to do. Yeah, a lot of just circumstance. Too. Right. To come into a year when there was literally no competition. I mean, there was competition for newcomers, for newcomers, but there was not one person who threw a pass that, that returned or a quarterback that threw a pass. So um, I would say 80 percent of its opportunity and 20 percent of it's just taking taking advantage of that opportunity there's a lot of great quarterbacks that come in they're just they're not going to play as true freshmen because there's there's incumbents or or older guys um, on the roster by the way would you like to guess Phil Steele's projection at quarterback for Vanderbilt um Deuce Wallace <laughs> close Jeremy Musa who Seriously? I don't know if, I don't know if he'll play a snap this year or in his career yeah okay uh, I think Phil likes to talk to the coaches or likes to brag about how long he talks to the coaches. I think the coach told him some information that the coach wasn't being completely honest. Uh, like, not that that ever happens. Where he, he was believed to be the quarterback, right? 
Yeah, well, and then coaches get mad at you because you go behind their back digging around for stuff when they just are not honest about stuff. And and I get that. I, I get why they might want to um, not put everything out there, but you, you can't have it both ways. Agree. Let's see. Last question is from VandyFan00. I wonder if this is Phil Cox. Uh, the pandemic has caused us to be a very strange season thus far and no sign of leveling out anytime soon. Three Sunbelt teams beat Big 12 opponents in just one weekend. LSU falls to Mississippi State. The question I have is how will talent be evaluated and considered coming out of this season, especially in regards to the NFL? Will the season just be chalked up as an exhibition with a giant asterisk? Or will it put kids who normally wouldn't get a chance to see the field and a true shot at getting noticed? With the opt-outs and COVID absences, do they make it too difficult to compare apples to apples? Also, with the extra year of eligibility, do you anticipate that the pool of talent in college football uh, is going to be the same going into the draft? Or will there be a surplus of kids for a few years? Uh, Good thing we're ending on an easy one for you here, Mitch. My answer is yes to that question. No, um... (laughs) It's uh, I, I don't think it changes the evaluation. There's there's more than enough teams playing and good players playing to evaluate players. Um, sure, some Big 12 teams lost to Sunbelt teams. I don't know if that was pandemic related. Some of those Big 12 teams actually came back and played well the next week. But those Sunbelt teams were good that beat them. And that happens every year. There's upsets. So I, I think there might be more opportunity for players to, to put some good film out there because they're getting opportunities because certain guys have opted out. Like look at LSU. They have some other guys who are going to have to step up because guys like Jamar Chase have opted out. Vanderbilt has not that they're NFL caliber guys, but Vanderbilt has some offensive linemen that are getting early experience because guys opt out. So there's more opportunities out there. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I understood the, the latter part of his question, but it doesn't affect the draft. No one who, no one who is going to get drafted is going to come, is is going to come back for an extra year. Now, like if you're just a nor- if you're a third year junior and you're a fifth round pick, you might come back. But no senior, in my opinion, is going to come back for another year of college football if they're going to be drafted. I think you'll have some seniors who decide to come back because they love playing or they think that they can maybe work themselves into a draft pick or they want to go to grad school or different reasons. But I I don't think it's going to affect that much the availability of players in the NFL draft this year. Vandy Gal 78 got one question in under the wire. We'll hit that in the in the show. She says post-game comments and in-game attitude from the players indicates to me a significant upgrade in motivation, attitude, and belief. I assume this is all from the new coordinators. Is that where this is coming from, or is Mason making changes too? Is Mason giving these coordinators more freedom to run things than he has in the past? I don't think that's it. I mean, I, he's 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 a head coach who doesn't really meddle offensively. I don't think. I think Andy Ludwig was allowed to do what he wanted. I, a couple things. First of all, it's week one. Attitudes are always good in week one. You know, last year, week one, you get blown out by Georgia. That's kind of a – even though it was not surprising, it was kind of a downer. I think, I think even the players, they go down there trying to win the game, of course. They don't necessarily think like we think. But they know they played well, relatively well. They know the defense played well. So they're – there was no reason for them not to have a good attitude. I think some of it is in, it's been well chronicled. You had a group of seniors there that got disenchanted with the performance and of the team and weren't great leaders and all that. And I think so you got better leadership this year. I don't know if it's the coordinators, uh, fresh start attitude uh, for a lot of the players. 
There's there's I think it's a combination of a lot of things, but you know it, it's week one, and you'd expect to have a good attitude in week one. Mitch, that'll be it for today's show. Tell people where they can follow you on Twitter. Tell folks about the Athletic, how they can subscribe, and what you guys have coming up there in the realms of things our listening audience would be interested to hear. Thanks, Chris. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Mitch Light, and I am now part of the uh, the uh, Athletic. Started a weekly, a daily SEC podcast called uh, Football and Grits, and I am on Thursdays with David Ubbin, who covers the University of Tennessee. We, we just kind of bounce around the SEC. So um, if you want to check that out, um, those are posted first thing Thursday morning. We had our first edition last week, and uh, it was a lot of fun. So uh, sorry, Chris, this is not the only podcast that I do. So you're cheating on me with other podcasts. But the, you know what, Chris? That employer pays me. Oh, well, that, so, so, so you're, we, what you're saying is you're, you're all about the money. Right. Yeah, that's me. All about the money. <laughs> that's that's two of us. Yeah. Well, if that was the case, I don't think either of us would have ever started on the ventures we yeah. did with Vanderbilt. But in that any yeah. case, um, Mitch, uh, seriously, thank you for joining us. I think it was a terrific show today, and I'm looking forward to doing a few more of these as we finally, thank God, dive into a college football season. And, and as always, we appreciate you being with us. Sounds good, Chris. Enjoyed it. Take care. You bet. He's Mitch Light. I'm Chris Lee. Thank you for listening to the Vandy Sports Podcast. We plan to have four more episodes coming later this week, so be sure and listen to them.